0: Welcome to another episode of Debatable with your hosts, Nina and Kyle. I'm Nina. I'm Kyle. And
1: today, we're going to talk about jargon. And actually, just like debate language in general. This is one of those episodes that we've been getting a lot of requests for. Like, we always get questions about like, what does this term mean? What does this term mean?
0: Why do we use these terms, etc.
1: Yeah, and we've always tried to educate on what a lot of these terms mean. Last year, we had an episode that we kind of discussed debate jargon already um but we were saying that like we can't really explain all the debate jargon yeah in any episode because like it always changes right so we said what what about let's just make an episode about language in general
0: and how language has evolved and how debate has ended up with its own like dialect of sorts right So we have a lot of debates about language as well, which is why we thought this episode would be relevant. And most debates is about how XYZ is portrayed, especially in media motions. So it often boils down to how things look like and how things are based on the language that it's used.
1: Yeah, it's kind of funny because you have debates where debaters go like, You know, the academe is locked in ivory towers. No one can really understand what they mean. Like, the public cannot access this. And then proceed to say something like, my first argument is about delta P-prime.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I feel like it's, it's very strange. Um, and as a debater, I don't know what I feel about debate jargon. Because on one hand, I find it amusing, and I have a tendency to use them as well, obviously. Um, if you're part of the ecosystem, you kind of can't avoid ending up Adopting the language of sorts. But my experience with it can be rather polarizing, especially since I used to travel a lot. And when I would travel, I get exposed to a lot of new jargon. And I feel alienated at the beginning. I feel like I don't understand. I'm not going to be able to judge properly. What does Delta mean? My first time encountering Delta was just, I thought it was a joke, right? I didn't know. It's like, why is there math in here? And for those who don't know delta just means change, right? It's just a fancier way of saying change. And it took me a while to get that.
1: What you feel is you feel alienated mm. because of jargon. But I feel like I might be alienating non-debaters from like being able to understand me. Like there are a lot of times when I I, I want I want to make an argument to someone who is not a debater, and I always have to ask myself is this something that I understand because I'm a debater, or is this argument just really compelling? Mm. So I, I feel like it helps debaters be more compelling to fellow debaters, but not necessarily more compelling to non-debaters. So it, it depends on like what your priorities should be. Like if, if your priority is always just to win debates, then this is where you, you'd probably appreciate jargon more. But If, again, it's about, like, communication to people, all people, even if they're not necessarily debaters, I think that that's where jargon gets a little bit more problematic. But I guess the question now is, is the use of debate jargon necessarily bad?
0: Well, I wouldn't say it's necessarily bad. And this is because we need to start with a different premise. We think that we're all just speaking the same English. At least Kyle and I think we're all just speaking the same English. Um, but debaters are speaking a certain dialect of English that evolves semi-independently from how the rest of the wor- world uses English. So, so we use English, but it's, it's, it deviates a little bit from the rest of society. So think about it. In politics, for example, um, terms become much more condensed as time goes on to better understand what these things are. So the term polarization, it's just one word now, but it describes something so so broad as a concept. It's about the divide of two different groups of people with different ideologies. And it might be so much harder to explain that concept instead of just using the term polarization. So jargon isn't necessarily bad because it serves a purpose. But the question is, does it serve the same purpose in debate?
1: Yeah, so I, I, I get what you're saying, but like, I suppose that English, the, the kind of English our language is used in politics, also moves kind of independently from what happens in Polsi. Because polarization is a Polsi term, right? Yeah. So what happens is language is moving towards, you know, making these more complicated terms that like are broader. But if you don't know anything about them, they're hard to access at first. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, politics is kind of going the other way where it's like, let's be as simple as possible. Like it doesn't matter if you capture like concepts as accurately, like in polarization, as long as it's simple. Like you see this with Trump and Duterte, like they're extremely simple to understand. Mm. Even though what they're saying doesn't necessarily capture all the nuances that a term like polarization might have. So it's interesting to me because I feel like all social groups have their own dialect. And because I read this book um, just a few days ago about... um, something called family familylect,
0: yeah which is
1: like each family has its own dialect it has its own like nuances and inside rules of how to use language and basically even your group of friends has its own family every single um, social group has its own family maybe the debate community has its own family that evolves on its own aside from how the rest of the world uses English or the re- how the rest of the world uses language. Um, but also on debate series posting, someone said that it's not necessarily bad, like it's good if you have debate jargon that might be difficult to understand if you're a non-debater. Because at least in the context of debate, if it's meaningful and relevant, then that is something that's worth celebrating. So this brings to mind like something like efficiency, because uh, the, the, in the case of the phrase, the harm exists on both sides. If you're you're debating and then you're talking about the harm, the opposing team can say, yeah, but that harm exists on both sides or the benefit exists on both sides. Over time, it became, it's not mutually exclusive. The phrase became, it's not mutually exclusive, which preserves the syllable count, but it adds an idea that you can co-opt a certain benefit or a certain Mm -hmm. harm. Yeah. And then, after mutual exclusive, which is something that we got from statistics, now it's symmetrical, which is from Geometry No Man, which has a better syllable count. It has less syllables than the harm exists on both sides. But according to some people, it means that the harm doesn't just exist on both sides, but it also has the same rate of escalation or de-escalation. So it becomes shorter, but it also means more things, which is why... Like, you want to be as efficient as possible when you're a debater because you want to say as many things as you can within the seven-minute mark. Mm -hmm. So what ends up happening is you compress so many more nuances into shorter and shorter phrases.
0: Yeah. Because I feel like it was either we learned how to have new jargon to accommodate for more complex terms, or we learn how to speak faster, which is the American way of debating. So I I guess either way, the the baseline here is that debate jargon evolves the same way a lot of different jargon does in other groups, like internet language, for example, or even TikTok language is different from Twitter language. Like they have their own familex right? so
1: definitely
0: yeah yeah, so that's how it works but the culture shock will always be there especially if you're new to a familyct in particular so for example in my opinion i had like a culture shock not just in the term delta but also the term counterfactuals like if you don't know what counterfactuals are in debate that's fine because until now i'm not sure what they are either but the first time i encountered them I I didn't know what they were. I know what counter proposals are, because it's like proposing a different model or a different policy from your opponent. But a counterfactual apparently means that it's different from the fact or the opposite of what the fact is now. So an alternate universe. Like a counterfactual is an alternate universe where X didn't happen and Y happens instead. And most debates about regret, like we regret, for example, um, someone's presidency or whatever for example hypothetically to have a counterfactual would be to reimagine a world where we didn't have x as president and had y as president instead or z as president instead so that's a counterfactual and it took me a while to get that and up until now i still end up in little arguments with kyle about what counterfactuals are. yeah
1: because uh i remember you were asking like so does that mean in a policy debate it is government that has to defend the counterfactual?
0: Yeah, if it's a if there's a proposal, I guess that proposal also serves as a counterfactual. Especially if it's not status quo.
1: And then okay, so if in a policy debate government says gives a policy, that's a counterfactual. Yeah. But opposition gives a counter policy. Yeah. Is that another counterfactual? So in that case, both teams are trying to defend a counterfactual. So yeah. neither team can say, well, you have to respond to the counterfactual.
0: No, no, because a counterfactual is something that doesn't exist in status quo. Um, so if OP just proposes status quo, then that's not a counterfactual, right?
1: Yeah, but if opposition proposes a counter policy
0: like a new policy, then neither yeah. side has a counterfactual or both are counterfactuals and therefore the, the, the use of the term is moot.
1: Neither know? side can say, you have to respond to the counterfactual because both of you are defending counterfactuals.
0: Yeah, but people will use the term anyway, as we know. And that's why it's confusing and why I don't like the term counterfactual anymore. I yeah. used to because I thought it was clever, like a lot of people who were first introduced to it, but I've left it behind.
1: Yeah, so you're example of culture shock was counterfactuals. Mine is probably deconstructives. Uh, There was a new thing in my time many years ago, around like eight years ago or something. So in first year, I don't know, ten years ago, Mm -hmm. because in first year high school a senior in the community you know him, um, but I won't name drop right now. A senior in the community said something like, before I move on to my constructives, I'd first like to discuss my deconstructives. Um, Which basically meant, I'll do rebuttals now. (laughs) (laughs) So I, I used it in a speech because like, oh, So I have constructives, not I have deconstructive. Mm-hmm, so I used it in a speech to my coach whose undergrad was philosophy and it, he got peeved because apparently deconstructive didn't necessarily mean rebuttal. He, he was saying that deconstructive um, is an adjective. It's not a noun, mm. right? So um, it means that you disassemble something. So when you're trying to deconstruct an argument, you're trying to disassemble it. You're not really you're trying butting. to take it down. Ah, okay. Yeah. So if you if you move on to your deconstructive contributions, you're not really showing why they're wrong. You're just showing the parts of the argument or something. And then years later, like seven years later, I had a class on philosophy of language and read um, this dude named Derrida. Mm-hmm. And this is why my coach, being a philosophy major, was relevant because he he told me later on that Derrida was one of his favorite philosophers. He was the first person to talk about deconstructivism, um, where... It's basically like, okay, let's take a particular concept and break it down until we find the underlying assumptions behind it and let's see if those assumptions are correct. So we have three definitions now of what deconstructive means. You have the dictionary definition of deconstruct, which is to disassemble. The philosophical definition of deconstruct, which is a form of conceptual analysis. And you have the debate definition, which apparently means rebuttal. So like... There's culture shock for me because, like, I don't know mm-hmm. what anything meant anymore, um, and at some point I was like, "Why is debate jargon even used? Why can't we just use regular language?"
0: And I guess, like, for me, one of the main reasons would be efficiency, like what we already discussed, like in the earlier part of this podcast. Like, it's condensing complex terms into bite-sized pieces for the benefit of everyone but mostly just for the benefit of debaters. So that was how it is used and I I hope that's the reason people use it, but as we can see that's not always the case, right? Sometimes we pick terms that are much longer just for the sake of sounding fancier. Like the change versus delta. Delta is two syllables. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Why would you choose delta? Because it sounds like much more, I guess, smarter. But that's well, that's like another reason, I guess, for so- choosing jargon
1: yeah so it's kind of like you want you want to be efficient but you also want to have the illusion of intellect like i remember that tiktok we watched the other day um from, from woke twit, about woke twitter mm-hmm. where it's like uh, we have to juxtapose the the critique of modern marches or something like that it doesn't make any sense uh like i feel like it it's kind of true for debaters also like we can't differentiate that woke tiktok person from like a debater if you play the clip we should probably play the clip These conversations are intrinsically multifaceted, right? There are different angles to be looking at this from, and it's crucial to juxtapose that contrast within those realms of varying perspectives. But uh, having these conversations is extremely, extremely vital in fundamental change and being able to sort of step back and look at this from a bird's eye view and not just a worm's eye view. And that of course begs the ever aching question of whose bird is this, right? Uh, sometimes, I also feel like aside from efficiency, sometimes trying to be associated with intellect becomes more important than efficiency of language. So you get, you actually get a lot of these terms imported from different fields. So again, mutually exclusive comes from statistics, delta is something that also came from the sciences. You have you brought Overton Window into mm-hmm. the, the...
0: Debate sphere.
1: Yeah. That's
0: <laughs> so, political science. That's
1: political science. So basically, I feel like what ends up happening is a lot of people who are debaters, they learn new things from their own studies. And then they try to import it into um, debating. And then it ends up catching on. So I feel like at some point, people will import things just because it sounds like a fancy term. Like, I remember um, I, I, I did this so with structural functionalism. I was just like, this is all about structural functionalism. But basically, what I was trying to say is, you know, it's there for a reason. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, there's a purpose for, for this existing. So, I guess my point is, when I did that, I wanted everyone to know that, like, I know my stuff. <laughs> yeah, so the, being associated with that kind of intellect becomes a little bit more important sometimes. So, yeah, you already men- mentioned delta, which just means change. It's getting popular even though it's one more syllable than the word that it's substituting. Um, there's also epistemic access.
0: Really? What's that?
1: Which means to know. Oh, it, really? it, it means, like, if you have epistemic access to something, it means you have the ability to know something.
0: Oh, I didn't yeah.
1: know that. Yeah, so it's, it, that's also getting popular even though, like, it takes three times longer to say than to know, right? Um, And this isn't necessarily new, actually. Um, There have been a lot of studies about some high school kids in um, California is one of those studies where they found that that group of friends didn't want to be associated with, like, the valley girl kind of speaking. Like, friend!
0: Yes!
1: Yes! Uh So they kind of hyper intellectualized or something their their way of speaking to the point that they don't use contractions anymore they don't say that or what they say that is or what is they also tend to hyper what do you call this? hyper enunciate their words
0: oh it's like a complete opposite of what the trends are now which is trying to make things shorter and shorter
1: yeah because for them being efficient in language like shortening language takes a backseat towards being associated with a kind of intellectualism. So it's kind of elitist, but like, that's something that they wanted to do for themselves. So they created a famulect for that. I feel like the debate community might be doing something like that as well.
0: Yeah. So speaking of elitism, I'd say another reason we have debate jargon is sadly for gatekeeping. You know, I think those who are in positions of power in debate or at least those who break consistently or those who do well consistently have a weird incentive to make sure that their language isn't accessible to everyone so that newbies don't catch on or outshine them or whatever. I know this is a pessimistic way to see the debate community but I'd say that gatekeeping is a thing and that's the reason why in a lot of Twitter discussions, debaters end up becoming a controversial topic um, especially to outsiders and fellow intellectuals who are non- non-debaters because they see our sport as like a form of intellectual masturbation where we just throw fancy terms around. And that's that's kind of true. There is a level of gatekeeping that happens and we try to keep people out. But I'd say that gatekeeping to some extent with jargon is a necessity, especially when we're talking about, let's say, very sensitive topics or topics that concern minority groups or the LGBT or feminism, like, as much as possible, we use jargon not just because they sound good but because that's the best way to ensure we are talking about these groups properly. That we discuss them like they are actually marginalized and use the term marginalization and not just say, for example, that, oh, they're kawawa or they're they're not doing well right now, right? So, I think that To some extent, while it is necessary to dumb things down for the benefit of everyone, we need to preserve some sort of dignity when speaking about these particular groups. And that's where jargon comes in.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. Although, I feel like one of the differences, and this is where... I'm kind of criticizing the debate community a little bit. The reason why it's different because we get a lot of these criticisms from people in um, sociology or other um, uh, social sciences and humanities. Basically, what they're saying is, at least when we do it, we do it knowing that we need to um, accompany it with some sort of practice, with praxis.
0: praxis right?
1: Yeah. Uh, unlike debaters, they just throw these terms around with no intention of using it for any like actual purpose outside of debate to better society so I feel like I mean it's good that we want to use these terms so that we can best capture or best represent the feelings flight struggles of people who we're talking about in debate but at the same time th- that desire to accurately depict or represent people shouldn't end after your speech ends. So that's something that I feel like jargon like makes us feel like we're already representing people well, but we're not really representing people because we're only representing them in the context of the speech and the context of the debate. But not anywhere else
0: I feel like that's a discussion For like another episode Because I, I think there's a lot to say About the sport in general And I think we've touched on that a bit On our previous series About debating debates Where we discuss um Like using other people's plights Just for sport Which is yeah. basically what we do, right? Yeah. But I guess we'll discuss that another time
1: There's also a trend where In order to reach 7 minutes People find really long-winded ways Of saying very simple things So like you can hear a sentence going like, at the point at which this happens, that is to say, when they engage in constructive political discourse, what they basically just mean is like when people talk. So the thing about that is, the way that we construct our language is strongly based on our priorities as a society or as a friend group or as a community. So we already talked about intellectualism and efficiency being one of our priorities, but I think that mainly our priority, especially for newbies, is to fulfill the seven-minute quota. So that's the same thing where you look at essays that have a minimum of like 100 words, you see a lot of these kinds of fillers as well. And the reason for that is they're 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 organizing the way that they use language based on their priority. And at that point, their priority is to reach a certain quota. Like debaters, uh, they, their priority is to reach seven minutes. So I guess if you really wanna get, take something away from this episode, this part of the episode, is that we need to notice why we're using the terms that we use and for what purpose we use them. So you can it's really telling about it's really telling us something about our priorities as a community whenever we consciously or unconsciously choose certain terms. And speaking of terms,
0: for now we want to actually talk about some of the terms and give you a bit of definition for each term so that if you're new to debate or just want to a, r- a refresher on debate, you can actually you know, join us here and learn about debate terms together.
1: Yeah, so we have a list of terms.
0: That we get asked about a lot. Yeah, yeah,
1: we have a list of terms. Let's just let's just do this quickly. Okay, Nina, what is the difference between a house, a bench, and a team?
0: Oh boy, let's go. So this is one of my pet peeves in debate. The fact that people don't know how to use the terms house, team, and bench properly. But obviously, language is dynamic and I stopped being so peeved about it. But I still... Uh, cringe a little when I hear it. So there is just one house in the debate. Let's start with that. So the common mistake is that you refer to teams as houses But that's not how it works. It's not like Harry Potter where there are four houses in a round. It's just one house because we are trying to emulate the British parliamentary system or the Asian parliamentary system where there's just one house and then there are different sides to that house where they discuss the merits or demerits of a particular topic. So there's just one house that includes the chair, and then the, the the teams and then when you're talking about bench then that's obviously government bench or opposition bench there's also opening bench and closing bench but basically they have to either be horizontally on the same side or vertically on the I don't same even side.
1: think that there should be an opening or closing bench
0: I don't think there I should think, be but people yeah. use it and I, I've just accepted it as it is yeah you I know? feel like if
1: you're talking about the opening just say the opening half or the closing half mm. but still preserve government and opposition bench because like like, the thing about that is, these people on the same side they sit on the same bench.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Like, right. So you have the you have the house, and then you have benches. So how about teams?
0: Oh, teams is very simple. It's the particular team itself. But it, in in British parliamentary, it's the team of two. But in Asian parliamentary, the team and the bench are the same. You know? Yeah, because like.
1: like you only have government and opposition on uh, in Asians, but in British parliamentary, you have opening gov, closing gov.
0: Yeah, I could talk about other formats and how these terms apply to those formats, like world's formats or other terms of parliamentary. But let's not delve into those things because that's a bit complicated.
1: Okay, how about Iron Man or Iron Person?
0: Okay, so Iron Person is the act of being in an incomplete team and therefore you have to basically carry the weight of your other teammate and do more than one speech to fulfill all the team rules, right. So that's basically if your partner left you behind or you're not an in- you're not in a complete team. So this was probably based on the multi-sport marathon. Where yeah, they call it the yeah. Iron Man, where it's a uh, test of your stamina, because basically debating more than one speech is going to be a test of your stamina. Um, but recent years has turned it into Iron Personing to be more um, politically correct, because Iron Man, you know, rather sexist as a term. And yeah. I remember there was a UADC where we attended. I was there,
1: like in UADC Cambodia. Yeah, we were in a council. Uh, we were in a council meeting, and someone proposed that we should say Iron Person instead of Iron Man, mm-hmm. which I think is completely valid. But we have to remember, like, the reason why it's Iron Man is because we're making a reference to the triathlon. So actually, right now, we consider if if you're an Asian's team, and so it means three team members, and you only have two members of that team present, not the third one, they're forced to Iron Man. But that's not really accurate to the roots of the term, because Iron Man literally means one person having to do three events. There's they're they're cycling, they're swimming. So Iron Man used to be about just one dude doing three speeches. But now it's just like a sauce, it's incomplete. So I suppose that even if we think about like the origins of the term Iron Man, it doesn't really matter because it evolves independently yeah. anyway. And
0: language evolves independently. Okay, next term, cannibalism. Basically, it's when you have to go against someone from the same institution. So you have to eat basically someone of your own blood. Yeah, basically. Why does it have to be? <laughs> I don't know why they use the term cannibalism. It's just how it is. And I think other sporting events also use cannibalism. When I used to do Taekwondo and I would have to fight someone in my same institution, it would be called cannibalism. So when
1: two Cobra Kai members fight in the All-Valley. In the
0: All-Valley, All <laughs> that is cannibalism.
1: There's also Bin Room. So Bin Room is basically like, okay, in order for you to make it to the quarter fi- octofinals, quarterfinals, etc., the final series, you need to be able to do very well in, pre- in the preliminary rounds. But if you don't do that well in preliminary rounds, if you're sure that you're not going to make it to the final series, you might end up in a bin room. The bin room means that you have no chance at all of making it to the the break rounds or Mm -hmm. the final series. That's basically what a bin room means.
0: Okay, so next is probably the difference between a knife and a shaft. Um, They end up being used interchangeably, right? Interchangeably. But basically, to knife, Your opening half means that you're deliberately rebutting them and responding to them, which you shouldn't do in any circumstance. So that's called a knife because you're stabbing them in the back or I guess in the front, if that was the case. But a shaft means that you're merely contradicting them. You're not actively like out for blood against them, but you might may be contradicting a policy they had or a statement that they made. So that's the difference between a knife or a shaft, but basically it's going against your opening half in BP. I
1: feel like there was a time that shafting was the norm, saying shaft was the norm. Like when I started in 2010, we said shaft, that's a shaft. Um, and over time it became more like knife because um, maybe it's because the associations we have with knifing are more, much more intense, much more visceral. So the next one...
0: Power match, fold, and power slice. So this is just,
1: difficult to talk about yeah, because it's I really think, technical. I
0: think that this should be saved for an episode on tabbing because I feel like this has a lot of discussion on why the algorithm is the way it is and why it should right. move forward that way. Yeah, but, but
1: we can, we can give just a summary. breeze through it. So these three um, terms refer to how we make matchups. So it kind of determines who gets to go against whom. So basically, if it's power match, you will go up against teams with the same number of wins as you so you the same win record basically you're in the same quote-unquote bracket um so basically it's trying to match the most powerful teams with each other that's why it's power match on the other hand fold um, is like when you write down the bracket into a piece of paper and then you fold it in half basically the top team goes against the lowest ranked team the second ranked team go against the second lowest ranked team so on and so forth
0: yeah so you basically cut in half reverse the second half and then put them next to each other a power slide is kind of complicated but it's a slide because you have to cut the bra- bracket in half then you get the top half of the bracket and the bottom half of the bracket and put them next to each other
1: so you slide the two brackets next you each other. basically
0: slide them together so if there are like 10 teams then first team goes against the sixth round and second goes against seven third goes against eight so on so forth yeah
1: it's easier to understand if you're writing down like the <laughs> you're writing it down on a piece of paper and then you actually cut the bracket in half and then slide it next to each other um so I guess that's it for this part where we talk about, like, terms about the technical rules of debating. How about terms that we use in speeches? So the first one we already talked about is counterfactual.
0: Yeah, as a summary, basically, it's just an opposite of what's happening in status quo, which I guess is another term, right? So status quo basically just means what's happening in the world now. What is what is What are things, basically?
1: Yeah the next one is burden so what is a burden
0: so the definition of a burden is basically what you need to prove in order to get your goal and the goal is the ultimate outcome you want in a debate
1: yeah so we've had a question about like what's the difference between a burden and a goal a goal is the outcome that you want meanwhile a burden is what you need to prove Mm -hmm. so I, i don't actually agree with you that the burden is to just get to the goal sometimes your burden might be to prove this is how you're gonna get to the goal But sometimes your burden might be like to prove a certain principle or something like that. Um, There's also mechanism. Mechanism means like this is the way that you sort of show people um, how things work. So if you're going to assert that something will happen, you need to show how it will happen. Mm. right? So if you mechanize something, that's what you show that something will happen. So the thing that makes um, those outcomes happen is the mechanism. Mm -hmm. Um, So this is different a little bit from structural reasons. This is like
0: structural reasons are more inherent because mechanism means that like you have to actively do something or there's a process. Yeah. But the structural reasons might be this is just the foundation of things. This is how things are. It's how it's built. Basically.
1: Yeah, because like, there, there was a controversy about like just people just say that when something like you have structural reasons for something, it automatically makes it more compelling. But really, structural reasons refer to what's inherent in the structure. Mm -hmm. Like, if you're going to say that corruption is likely to happen, a structural reason for that would be, let's say you have a lot of bureaucracy that encourages a lot of corruption. So it has to be something that adheres to the structure, like where the debate takes place.
0: And mechanisms would be like the people actively doing the corruption because they're the moving parts, basically.
1: Yeah, and this is both of those are kind of different a little bit from operationalization. Operationalization means like, how do you expect these things to operate? Or, yeah. So I guess those three terms tend to be used interchangeably. They're all slightly different from one another. But like, if you use any of them in a debate in those kinds of ways, no one will fault you for them, I guess, except if you're like a stickler like Nina or or Mm -hmm. myself, Mm -hmm, to be fair. mm -hmm.
0: So I guess that's like a lot of the terms we just threw at you. And I know it can be overwhelming. So how do you cope, Kyle? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Okay.
1: If you are a newbie, okay, I feel like you just have to expose yourself to it a lot. Because like if it is a new dialect or a new family, a good way to learn any new language or new dialect is to interact with people who already know that dialect. like you can learn it through context clues or by directly asking your coaches or your peers or even your judge. So if you're a newbie, like you've never debated before, and then you enter into a debate competition, you can ask your judge, what do these terms mean? Because I was a little bit confused in the debate. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's easy. I I guess like it's really easy to get overwhelmed. This is where we want to encourage you guys to even enter. Because like remember that in a debate, it's not the terms, but the ideas that carry the day. So if you ever feel like you don't want to debate because you don't know the terms that other people are using, it's okay. Don't worry about other people for now. We've been there. We've certainly been there. Yeah,
0: definitely. I'm Uh, still there sometimes. (laughs) Yeah, I'm still there
1: sometimes. Which actually, like, we could talk about boomers as well. How to cope if you're a boomer.
0: Just re-expose yourself. That's really the main thing. You can't expect to always be in the know, especially since language always evolves. So a similar tip to the newbies, just expose yourself once again. And even if you're a boomer, you should ask your judges what these definitions, what the definitions are, because yeah. you're not you're not exempt from being lost in a debate.
1: Yeah, we we are boomers. I'm I'm a boomer because like I I left the debate community for a little bit to go to law school, and then when I come back, what Delta? <laughs>
0: <laughs> same same. I mean, I I was a boomer when it came to online debating because I went away for a while. Yeah, but that's it. I hope that this episode helped to some extent. We didn't just talk about the terms themselves but talked about why we have these terms and i hope that it was educational to some extent especially when it comes to learning about language so that's it for this episode of debatable we'll see you in the next one bye bye, bye.